People seem to be divided about history. Some people love it, they love history, and some just don't see any relevance to it at all. And what's the point of even studying it or learning it? <clears throat> and we may have people of both opinions here today. I, I really have no idea how you feel about history. Anybody of you uh, love history in school or whatever? Do you love history? Oh, I got a hard audience today. Oh, there are a couple. <laughs> Anybody hate it? <laughs> Anybody awake? <laughs> so. Someone has equipped, why does history keep on repeating itself? And the answer is because we don't listen the first time. And that gives us at least one reason why, why history is important. Our study of the book of Genesis is studying history. In fact, a good part of the Bible is a record of historical events. So obviously God thinks history is important and we need to know it. But every once in a while, you come across a passage in the Bible where you really wonder why it's in the Bible. <clears throat> what is the relevance for us today? They have to do with events and with people that seem to really bear no significance or no relevance to anything that we can see at any rate. And that's kind of what we're facing as we come to this passage in Genesis that we are looking at today. The end of chapter 35 was Jamie read for us, and we're also going to include all of chapter 36. We'll be glad I didn't make you read all of 36, because <laughs> that's worse. <laughs> the names there are worse. <laughs> But chapter 35 or 16 to 29 contains some interesting historical events and historical stories that go along with the story of Jacob that we have been into for the past number of chapters. Uh, but they seem to be a bit random. A couple of them we can see the significance. One of them is just a random incident, just recorded in one verse and nothing more said about it. Chapter 36... The next chapter is a record of the children of Esau, which is Jacob's brother. Esau was also known as Edom. He settled in the mountains of Seir, and the whole chapter of chapter 36 is a record of his children and their descendants, and the clans or the tribes that they developed into. And it's one of those passages where you read it and wonder, why is this even in the Bible? What is the significance for us? today, the relevance for us. Well, the reason it's important is because it tells us how these things, or tells us how things came to be. These historical notes would have been very important to the first readers of this book. Genesis, you'll remember, when way back when we started this series through the book of Genesis, we looked at this. Genesis was written by Moses, and his intended first readers was the young nation Israel leaving Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, which was Canaan. So these historical events would have been very pertinent to those first readers. These were the things that they needed to know as they went to the promised land and took it because it affected how things would turn out. But for us today, even for us, we, as we see how God worked through the people of that time, all the while shaping his great plan of salvation for the human race through these events, it's significant for us too. So let's quickly go through the events of this passage, and we'll then look at the application for us today. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Chapter 35, verse 16 and following. After Jacob had returned to Bethel and returned to God, we saw that last week, he had, you know, walked away from God for a time, and, but last week we saw him go back to Bethel, come back to God, first half of chapter 35. He built an altar there at Bethel, he worshipped God, and God spoke to him, God reminded him of the covenant and of his promises, and Jacob needed to get his feet back on that foundation of those promises of God, that covenant of God. It says then that Jacob, 36, 35 or 16, that Jacob moved on from Bethel. And we know from the rest of the chapter that he was headed back to Hebron, or Kiriath Arba, same thing, uh, where his father Isaac was. That's where Jacob had been living up until the time he fled from his brother Esau and went to his uncle Laban in northern Mesopotamia there called Paddan Aram. Uh, so he had been there for 20 years, 10 years added to that up north. We looked at that in the last few weeks. So now he's headed home. But along the way, it tells us here that Jacob's wife Rachel went into labor. Remember Jacob, or Rachel was Jacob's beloved wife, the woman he first fell in love with? His uncle had tricked him into marrying his sister Leah first, and we went through all that. But anyway, Rachel, the one that Jacob loved, she had borne Jacob one son, who was Joseph. And it was shortly after Joseph's birth that they left Uncle Laban to come back home. But they had that lengthy detour of likely about ten years in Succoth and Shechem, which we looked at in the past uh, few Sundays. But now, on the way home, Rachel goes into labor giving birth to her second child. And it says it was a very difficult labor. Severe, it says. And she did have another son, but Rachel died in childbirth. She lived long enough to name the boy Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. But then she died, and Jacob, after that, changed the baby's name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So, in this mix of joy and grief, Jacob looked at that boy with a measure of hope for the future. They buried Rachel at that spot on the way to Ephrath, which later would become known as Bethlehem. And tradition has it that where they buried Jacob, where, or Rachel, where Jacob set up that pillar as a headstone over her grave, is about 12 miles away from Bethlehem, or Ephrath as it's called here. And as he's writing this, Moses makes a point to say that that headstone is still there to this day. So, as Moses was writing it, that headstone was still there hundreds of years later. So they traveled on, and they stopped for a time at the Tower of Edar. Some translations say the Migdal of Edar. Migdal is a Hebrew word. It means tower, as near as can be understood. And uh, some translations don't even bother translating They just say Migdal. Uh, they think it means tower. So likely there was a tower there that was used to keep watch over the country of the flocks of sheep and goats and so on. And then verse 22 tells of an interesting and rather disgusting incident. While they were there at this tower of Eder or Migdal of Eder, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, went and slept with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Bilhah, you remember, was Rachel's maid. 
when Rachel couldn't give children or have children, remember the story way back months ago, we were looking at this. When Rachel couldn't have children, she gave her maid Bilhah to Jacob as a concubine so she could have children for her. And Bilhah did bear two of Jacob's children, Dan and Naphtali. And verse 22 here just tells us this event happened. Reuben went and slept with her. And that Israel, or Jacob, heard it, heard, heard about it. And if Jacob took any action to deal with it at this point, we're not told. Uh, I just have that one verse there, verse 22, and then the story goes on. But if you look ahead to Genesis 49, verse 4, you will see that Jacob did not forget about this incident. And this sin came back to haunt Reuben and his descendants. So we're going to come back to that, so keep that in mind. The writer takes a bit of a break in the story now as we get to 35, verse 23. Now that Benjamin has been born, the family of Jacob, or Israel, as his, his new name is, uh, his family is complete. Israel now has 12 sons, and the descendants of each of these sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're listed there in verses 23 through 26. First, the sons of Israel's wife Leah are listed, then the sons of his wife Rachel, and then the sons of his concubine Bilhah, and then who was Rachel's maid, and then finally the sons of his concubine Zilpah, who have been Leah's maid. So these sons are not listed in the passage here according to their age, they're listed according to who their mothers were. And this is kind of Moses' way, as you're righteous, of bringing the focus on Jacob to a close. The story will now continue on by focusing not on Jacob, but on his sons, and one son in particular who is Joseph. So Jacob's family is now complete, and now the focus will shift away from Jacob. And the chapter ends with Jacob finally reaching Hebron and his father Isaac, and then it records the death of his father Isaac at the age of 180, and it tells us that Esau and Jacob got together one more time to bury their father Isaac. And then as you go on to chapter 6, we didn't read it, it's a long chapter with a lot of hard names. But it's again a bit of a break in the story to inform us about Esau's family and his descendants. It does seem, this chapter seems to be kind of just randomly put in there. And it's one of those chapters that we struggle with to see any real significance or relevance to it. But there is. And especially to those original readers of this book. It tells us that Esau moved away from this area in Canaan and settled in the hill country of Seir. Seir was the name of the man who apparently first settled in that area. He was a Horite, it tells us. We know very little about the Horites. The best guess is they, were, they had Egyptian roots and had left Egypt and settled in different places. So at any rate, that's where Esau settled. Esau had three wives, you remember? We looked at that back before he left Hebron and moved to Seir. Two were Canaanite wives. They brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah, his parents. Then Esau married a daughter of Ishmael, hoping to get back into the parents' good books, at least to somebody from the family kind of thing. He, you know, just wasn't getting it. We looked at that. We're not going to go into chapter 36 in any great detail. Esau's children from each of his wives are listed in that chapter, as well as their children. Esau's grandsons became leaders of tribes in that land, and that information is given to us in chapter 36. What is interesting to note is that we're told in verse 12 of chapter 36 that Esau's son Eliphaz had a concubine named Timnah. 
And then as you look ahead to chapter 36, verses 20 to 30, there are listed the descendants of Seir, the Horite, that were there before Esau got there. And we see in verse 22 that Seir had a granddaughter named Timnah. So what happened was that Esau and his family settled in that area, and Seir and his family were already there, and the two families intermarried with each other. And in time, the descendants of Esau became dominant, and these descendants of Seir were kind of amalgamated into Esau's family. Esau had another name, as I said before, you remember. He was also known as Edom. He got that name back when he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. You remember that story? Edom means red. Same color as that stew, so that's where that name Edom comes from. <laughs> so that was Esau's other name and became his dominant name, actually. So as time went on, Esau, or Edom's family, became a nation, and that nation was known as the Edomites. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau, which amalgamated, or, yeah, the family of the Horites amalgamated into the Esau's family, into the Edomites. So we have the Edomites, descendants of Esau, and we have the Israelites, who are descendants of Jacob, or Israel. That's the significance of this chapter. It records for us the beginnings of the Edomites. And as the story of the nation Israel goes on through the next many hundreds of years, you will read off and on through the Bible of how the Edomites were a problem for the Israelites. The Edomites were always hostile toward Israel and gave them a fair bit of grief. So that's why that chapter is in here to show how the Edomites came to be and why things developed the way they did. So we had the two brothers, twin brothers, who were at odds with each other right from the beginning and quarreling with each other, and we were gone through the whole story. Their descendants became the Edomites and the Israelites, and the Edomites were a constant thorn in Israel's side for the hundreds and hundreds of years after this. So that's the story of this section that we're looking at today. It has to do with history and how God works through history. And there is a couple of lessons in here for us. So let's look at them. It's important that we understand how God works through history and will continue to use our present to shape our future. And a study of the illustrations of God working through human history that come out of Genesis, this passage here in Genesis, will help us understand that or gain that understanding. So the first illustration I want us to see here that applies to us is God is a God who works through human history. God is a God who works through human history. And we've seen that all along through the book of Genesis. Ever since sin entered into the human race in the Garden of Eden and separated mankind from God, God at that point put in place his great plan of salvation to get us as humans back to himself. That plan of salvation would unfold over thousands of years, climaxing, as you know, with God himself coming to earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die to pay the penalty for the sin of the human race. A huge part of that plan was to establish a nation on earth through whom he could reveal himself to the people, first of all, of that nation, and then through that nation to the people of all the other nations. And also a nation through whom his son Jesus could be born. And all of this had to be done 
without God violating the free will of us as humans. And so God does his work through people, through the actions and choices of people. He calls people, he reaches out to people, he brings things about through the actions of people. People sometimes follow and obey God, many times they don't. But God is sovereign, and whether the choice is to follow God or rebel against God, He takes the resulting consequences of our choices and makes them part of His great plan. But God always works through human history, and in human history. That's why this is important. That's why events like these are recorded in the Scripture, so we can read about it and see at this point in history, this happened And that set in motion these events, which are steps in God's plan for this world. And that's why, as you read the Bible, and some of these passages that we see are so boring and so irrelevant and so obscure, that's why oftentimes in those passages, numbers are included. The ages of people when significant things happen. They're there so we can pinpoint events in history with pretty good accuracy. And we can say, at this point, at this time, during the lifetime of this person who lived during these years, God did something significant. At this point in human history, these events took place, which is how the nation of Israel came into existence, which is how Jesus came. And we just go on and on with that. Friends, The work of God in putting together our salvation is deeply rooted in real historical events that literally took place at a point in history, making it all possible. Christianity is not a faith that is all in the realm of the spiritual with no connection to the physical history of planet Earth and the human race. Christianity is not just a system of thought or just a set of values that is totally disconnected from the events that make up the story of the human race, like most other religions are. And so the record of these historical things matter because it grounds the workings of God in the physical, literal history of our planet and of the human race. And that is what gives Christianity credibility. It isn't just subjective ideals and values that we teach as being good ideals and values to be followed. It's the story of God always working through historical people and historical events to bring about our salvation, climaxing, of course, with the birth of God's Son, Jesus. Birth of God's Son, Jesus. God taking on human form, being literally and physically born of a woman like any other woman and any other birth at a specific time in human history, to a specific people prepared for just that purpose, and who died at a specific place on a specific day in history, and after three days rose from the dead, literally, bodily, at a specific time in our history. The dates are there. The historical time frame is recorded. The events are put down for all time. It grounds our faith in reality. Friends, God is a God who works through human history. And that's the importance of the recording of 
these events being recorded for us and laid out for us in the Bible. It shows how God has worked in and through humans all along, right from the beginning, and tells us how things came to be to produce what we have now. And more than that, it tells us by implication that the things that are happening now in our present world are being and will be used by God to shape what is to come. Things that God will use to bring about His great plan for this world as predicted in the Scripture. We need to remember that. We look at our world around us and we see all the chaos and all the upheaval and all the sinful things going on in our world and the leaders of nations and you just shake your head and it all seems so chaotic. But God will use what is happening now to bring about His plan for the future. That plan to bring things to a head, to return to this earth, to gather us as Christians to Himself, and to deal with sin and evil once and for all. God is a God who works through human history. So that's the significance of the recording in the Bible of these events that sometimes we see no relevance to. Remember that when you read them. You're reading their Bible and you come across these passages that just seem, oh, wow, wow, I don't know. <laughs> it's important. That's the significance of it. It shows us how God has been working all along and bringing to be his great plan of salvation. Secondly, our actions will affect our future legacy. Our actions will affect our future legacy. Because God is a God who works through human history, that means that he is using our present events to shape the future according to his plan, as we've just seen. And that means what we do here and now, the actions that we take, and the choices that we make now, today, will have a bearing on the future. And not just my future. The choices and actions I take now will affect the people after me. The path of my life that I choose to take will affect others. It will affect my children. It will affect my grandchildren. It will affect the people whose lives my children touch. There's a great example of that in this passage. Reuben, chapter 35, verse 22. He made the choice to commit a disgusting sexual sin by sleeping with his father's concubine. Nothing more is said about that in this passage except that his father heard about it. That's all it says. And the story goes on. But if you look ahead to Genesis 49, verse 4, in fact, I'd like you to turn there. In your Bible, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 4. Uh, the context of this passage is just before Jacob's death, he is having his last words with his sons and giving them his blessing. And these blessings that Jacob gave his sons turned out to be inspired by God and turned out to be prophetic about the future. So, 49 verse 4, he's talking about his son Reuben there, his firstborn. 
This is what he says. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Reuben was the firstborn. And by the custom of the time and the culture, should have had the place of preeminence in the family after Jacob died. But because of what he did here in verse chapter 35, verse 22, he lost that. He was a man, apparently, from what says there in 49, verse 4, that was uncontrolled. Apparently given over to the impulses and the lusts of the moment. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. <laughs> we can look back, we can read the story of the nation Israel as it went on from this point that we're reading about in chapter 35. And we can see how, like hundreds of years later, when they took the promised land of Canaan, they were divided up according to the twelve tribes, the descendants of each of these twelve sons of Jacob, or of Israel. Each tribe was allotted a portion of land in Canaan, the promised land. And as we read the story of Israel, we read that the tribe of Reuben was always a minor player in the nation. No prophet, no judge, no hero ever came from the tribe of Reuben. So that's a sobering illustration, friends. The choices we make, the actions we take, the path of life we choose has an effect on the future. It doesn't just affect the here and now. The results and the consequences reach way into the future. If I choose a sin of life, or a life of sin and rebellion against God, or a life of indifference to God, it will not just affect my life, but it will affect the people in my life that I interact with. Most sobering, it will affect my children and my grandchildren. And because it affects them, it will affect how they interact with the people in their lives, so it affects the people they touch. If I choose to be a hypocrite, claim to be a Christian, but fail to live in accordance with the Christian faith, and keep on making sinful choices while at the same time claiming to be a Christian, Or if I choose to treat others unfairly or take advantage of people with crooked deals, if I choose to live with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness, that hypocrisy will affect others and hugely it will affect our children. So that can work both ways. It can work toward the good. If we choose to follow God and walk with God and live according to God's Word. It will have a good effect for generations down the road. If I choose not to do that, it will have a bad effect for generations down the road. Two illustrations that I'd like to share with you on both sides of the issue. First one is my family. And uh, some of you probably have heard me tell this story before. But there was a man way back in my history of the Gerbrandt family. He was my great-grandfather. His name was Jacob Gerbrandt. Living in Russia and born to a family that was poverty-stricken. So poverty-stricken that 
his parents couldn't afford to raise all of the children, and they were having piles of children. And so the local pastor took in my great-grandfather and I think one or two of his siblings into their house and raised them. That pastor was a good, godly Christian man. The Mennonite stock that my family came from, there were, at that time, in that place, very much, you know, their own kind of separate from the world thing, but the preaching of salvation by grace alone, of repenting of your sin and accepting Jesus into your heart, uh, that was not preached so much in the family my great-grandfather was born into. It was all about being separate from the world and doing this with more of a cultural thing. But the pastor's family that he was born into did preach the truth about the Bible. And so my great-grandfather was raised in that family. And he heard the gospel. And he made the choice to accept Jesus as his Savior. And he grew up and he married in Russia a woman of like faith. And uh, the time they came, when my grandfather was five or six years old, they moved to Canada and told the story of how we moved got here. It is interesting, my great-grandfather's family, I think there are four of his sons, he had 12 kids, four of his sons became pastors, and of the grandchildren, a number of them are pastors, and that's gone on now for three or four generations, where there's a lot of pastors, missionaries coming from my great-grandfather's family. We had a family reunion, um, oh, this was way back before I was married, uh, of all the Gerbrandt family, that all the descendants that were in Canada, and there's a lot of them, a bunch of them down in California at this point. But they all came together, and, and, the, and this discussion happened, and I was a, oh, a teenager, and I was listening in on, on this discussion about how these events took place. There was at this family reunion a distant relative who was a cousin of my great-grandfather, a descendant of my great-grandfather's cousin. And they had never heard the real story of salvation. But he had later on become Christian, this descendant had become a Christian, and so he was he was there at the family reunion as well, just invited and and uh, getting to know, they're more distantly related than the rest of us, but but he made the comment, you know, in my, in my family, descendants of your great-grandfather's brother, I think it was, you know, just a very small handful of Christians, hardly, where my great-grandfather's family, predominantly Christians, many of them pastors, missionaries, and so on. So that's an illustration of how the choices we make will go on from generation to generation to generation and have a good effect or a bad effect. The bad effect one, and uh, I've got to be a little careful here. <laughs> <laughs> when I first moved to Lashburn, I, I began hearing, just in general talk and conversation, whatever, hearing about a guy, uh, he's long gone by now, but hearing about a guy, not from the Lashburn area, but a, from a, a neighboring community, who claimed to be a Christian, but was a hypocrite. And... And the things that he pulled, the deals that he pulled with fellow people, the crooked and false dealings and whatever, um, yeah, it was just 
And I, I, I would hear rumblings from now and then about this guy who called himself a Christian, but he was just so far away from being any kind of Christian. And, and, and the effect that that had on people in this community and in the neighboring community and how many people he had turned away from God because he claimed he was a Christian, but his life was far from it. And uh, I'm not going to say his name. Some of you might know him. <laughs> He's long gone. But I've never heard anybody say anything good about this guy. Years ago, I had the funeral of his daughter. And at that funeral, uh, again, talking, and uh, someone later on said to me, kind of in private, you know, he was claimed to be a Christian. He brought his kids to church. He brought his kids, his kids went to youth group. But now there's not one of his kids that are following the Lord. The choices we make, the path of life we choose, affects down the road. God works through human history, and the choices we make will have an effect from generation to generation down the road. Our actions will affect our future legacy, and that's a sobering thought. It forces us to ask, what path am I on? Am I choosing godliness? Am I choosing to live consistently in accordance with what my Bible teaches? To treat others in my life with love and grace? To be a man of God, be a woman of God, be a child of God in every way. Our future legacy is at stake. Steve Green, Christian songwriter, kind of more from the past now, I guess, but uh, one of the most popular when I was kind of in my early 20s, back in the back in the 80s, Steve Green, he recorded a song, I don't think he wrote it, but he recorded a song that speaks to that, and the chorus of that song goes, Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. So therefore we see from this passage the illustrations of God working through human history and what that means for us. Those illustrations are, number one, God is a God who works through human history. His workings are through people who really existed he has worked at specific times in real history. He uses people to put into play the events that are a part of our lives for today and into the future. He puts into play through people his great plan of salvation. And that means, or that affects you and I, because it means, secondly, number two, that our actions will affect our future legacy. People around us, our children, our grandchildren. Friends, we know our faith is real because it's grounded in real time and in real space and in real history. But it also means that our choices and life direction is significant and will affect far into the future. That's a sobering thought. Let's take our time of silence.
and just use this time of sound. So let God speak to us personally. What is God saying to me this morning? I'll give you a few moments. Open your heart to God and listen to what God's saying to you. Amen.